0: We'll turn with me this morning to the conclusion of Psalm 18. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 50. As you turn there, I'd like to reflect for just a minute upon Thanksgiving in our culture and society. And I have to tell you, I'm beginning to think that our culture is pushing for only one day of Thanksgiving throughout the whole year. And I don't mean one holiday, I mean, one day where we actually tell someone, thank you. You see, the attitude of gratitude is disappearing in a culture of brashness, in a culture of whining, in a culture of complaint. We're more interested in our rights than we are in thanking God for our blessings. But for David and the church, one day is not enough, is it? Psalm 18 is sometimes ascribed as a royal thanksgiving psalm. How appropriate to have it both before and after thanksgiving in our church. Follow along as I read the second half of this psalm. To give thanks, a reminder, David said in the first verse, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Continuing with verse 25. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known saved me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring, forever. As we consider these words of thanksgiving, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, let these words fall on ears that hear and hearts that believe. Help us to be able to sing your praises as David does and remind us of your precious promises. I pray, Lord, that anything spoken today that is not consistent with your word may pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from Showboat in 1927 to Oklahoma in 1943, to Fiddler on the Roof in 1964, the golden era of Broadway musicals took the entertainment world by storm. And of course, Hollywood was no different. Musical films were made and written profusely with song and dance not only about everyday things and lives and important figures in history, but even musicals written about musicals. It was a time of song and dance. There's something about song, poetry, joy, and gratitude. And I think there's something missing from many of our houses in our lives today. It's not just that we don't sing enough songs. It's not just that we don't have joyful dancing in our houses. It's this. What is it that you are truly thankful for And what is it that you truly are grateful to God about? You see, if you're a believer today, do you really have joy in who God is and what he has done? That's what David is doing in this psalm. He's putting on paper his joy and gratitude for the personal relationship he has with the God who rescued him Yes, rescued him from sin, but also rescued him time and a time again in his life personally as he writes some of that history before us. David the warrior breaks out into poetry to describe the Lord. Here's what he's describing. The Lord's faithfulness, the Lord's triumphs, even the Lord's exaltation. Remember the first part of this psalm we looked at last week. He's describing the Lord as a rock and redeemer. He's describing the Lord as a God of vengeance upon his enemies. He's also describing the Lord as someone who will deal with David according to his righteousness. Of course, the righteousness only given to him by faith. And here he is in verse 25, continuing that theme. Here is the Lord's faithfulness. First of all, He says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. Unfortunately, I don't like the word merciful here. It's the word devout or faithful. It is the word from the word group hesed, which describes covenant faithfulness. In other words, those to his own people he is faithful to as they called by him, brought together by him in the covenant... Enabled by him to be faithful in their walk with him, he then will be faithful. And of course we know from scripture, he is even faithful to them when they are not faithful to him. God is faithful. To his own people, they are to be faithful. The next phrase is blameless and the third phrase is pure describing God's people. He is merciful or faithful to those who show themselves devout or faithful. He is blameless towards those who are blameless. He is pure to those who are purified. Now, these are his own people. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, that means God doesn't really have to be faithful to anybody, does he? How many people are truly faithful, blameless, and pure After all, David just wrote a couple chapters ago, there's no one righteous, no, not one. We're reminded that there's no one who even seeks after God. We could, throughout the corpus of Scripture, show how God's people were faithless, not faithful. We could show the pages of Scripture which detail that God's people are full of blame for all kinds of different things, even reading this morning that they're even blameworthy in their ignorance And yet here it says God is faithful to these people. Faithful people, blameless people, and pure people. And this reminds us, how do we get that way? It's not by anything we have done. It's by everything God does. We become faithful not because we have some innate ability to follow God or we have some righteousness of our own. It's only by God working in us conviction of sin and causing us time and time again to turn from that sin to God. And then here he can describe us as faithful. We can only be blameless in the sense that God will remove our sins by this process of faith and justification that he will take our sins and place them upon the Savior Jesus Christ. We are only pure in this that God will remove our sin and our unworthiness and purify us by his grace. He is faithful to his own people because they are the people he's put together. How is David blameless and pure? David, who would commit adultery and murder. David, who would do things against God's will time and time again. How can he be described as faithful, blameless, and pure? It's only by the work and mercy of God. And to David and all the like. You and I, if we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, God is faithful to us, God is blameless to us, and God is pure to us. What gratitude we should have. Then he says this, he says in the next phrase, with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. Now, it's kind of tortuous how to describe that verb because it's the same verb here as the noun crooked. He makes himself crooked. In other words, God brings back on their head what they deserve, crookedness or wickedness. God, in essence, to his crooked enemies will bring upon them their just deserts. This is the God that we have, a God who is gracious to his people, and yet will bring justice to his enemies. But again, his people, David, dwells on more than the enemies in this section of the psalm. He says, for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you will bring down, for it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. You see, the Lord is faithful when he saves the humble. Now again, what does he mean by this? Of course, we could turn to the Beatitudes and we could say all those things about what a faithful person is or the one who receives God's blessings. And one of those is a reminder of those that are poor in spirit, those that are humble. They're not arrogant. They don't go to God and say, God, I'm a great person. I have great talents, great gifts, all these wonderful things. You do, you, I deserve your blessings. You must give me these things. no. God saves the humble. We live in a land where everybody seems to be exerting their rights. Everybody seems to be exerting their worthiness before others. Everyone wants to be treated the same way as everybody else, regardless of their background, their circumstances, their actions, which in a way is a good thing. We should treat others with respect. But before God, he wants us to be humble. To recognize our unworthiness, not to be arrogant and haughty, but to be humble. And to the humble, God will then, it says, light the darkness. What a great phrase. It is you who light my lamp. Now again, this is a reminder God is the one in the darkness of our existence, the darkness of our sin and depravity, the darkness of our distress and the overwhelming sense of sorrow we have for sin and for depravity, for the the circumstances of living in a world of sin and depravity. It says here, God will lighten the darkness. They're saying that even now in places where they don't have electricity because of the energy crisis and the war in Europe. They're saying that in places where things are not like our part of the world and they understand that what darkness really is, I have to say I don't think my kids know what darkness really is very much because we've almost always had electricity. We've almost always had streetlights. We've almost always had the availability to turn on something that will shine the light for us. But if you know what real darkness is, light is so very valuable and important. And for those of us who are spiritually in the dark, God will lighten the darkness. He lightens the lamp of the humble It says, the Lord my God lightens my darkness, for by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. David's gone out of his mind. He says here, not only will you make the darkness light, remember there wasn't electricity in David's day. He knows what it means to have the valuable, the valuable sense of what light is in darkness. But now he says he can go against a whole army battalion. Now he can leap over a wall. Now, when he says leap over a wall, it's not not the, the little wall you have out, uh, the retaining wall, perhaps out by your house. This is, this is the wall of a city, of fortified cities that he's talking about. What does he mean he can do these things? You see, God, when he saves the humble, can remove obstacles. He can help you overcome these obstacles. David realizes that the amazing and powerful things he's seen God do in his life are attributed not to David's abilities, not to his ability to to supernaturally leap over a wall like Superman. It's that God has given him the ability to see these obstacles removed that God would protect him and guide him and lead him. And then he says, in God's faithfulness to this, as he saves the humble by lighting the darkness and removing the obstacles, this God, very unusual in some ways to describe it this way, it's the word thee or this, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. He's giving gratitude to the Lord for his faithfulness, not only that he is faithful and blameless and pure to his people, not only that he brings justice upon his enemies, not only that he looks at the humble and he helps them remove obstacles and lights the darkness for them, but it's a reminder that the very pathway of God is perfect. Or blameless. Now David lived a long time ago. He lived in an era where gods, we know they were nothing idols really, were common. Every city in Canaan had their own god. It seemed like every people had their own temple of worship to their god. And the paths of those gods, according to their prophets often included violence, bloodshed, and immorality, and more. In fact, if you know what took place in those temples, it would make you blush, even in 21st century America. Their word, we know, was really non-existent. These idols didn't speak. And the mouths of their prophets were false and untested. They would predict things that would not come to pass. They would say things that were not true or were misleading. In fact, many of these false prophets or priests would use the circumstances of this false God to take advantage of the people in their own city. But this God, says David, this God is different. This God has a blameless past for the righteous or for the people that he he, who follow him it's blameless in other words it's not a path of violence it's not a path of sexual immorality it's not a path of putting down others it's not a path that would destroy it is a path that is blameless and perfect and his words in fact the words here it says proves true these are words being tested or having been tested these words being tested prove to be true. In other words, it's not just that God spoke, it's that everything he spoke came to pass if it was a prediction, or everything that he spoke was true according to the evidence in the world around them. His words are true. This is the world we or this is the message we have to give to the world that God's word is true world doesn't believe that. The world looks at the word and they say this is an outlier. This is something that is different from what everybody else is teaching. They are bigoted. They are someone who is, is, is just leading people down a rotten path. And yet here scripture's claim is this. David says God's word is proven true and God's path is blameless or perfect. This God David says, is worthy and real. Verse 31, for who is God but the Lord? Again, capital L-O-R-D, the covenant name Yahweh or Jehovah. In the Old Testament, the, the God who has called a people unto himself... He's described them as his children, as the apple of his eye we looked at in the last chapter. He's described them as those that he has brought out of Egypt, those that he has called as a people unto himself. And he says, David does, he says, who is a rock except our God? Here's that term again. David uses it again and again in Psalm 18. A rock, a boulder. You see, he's saying this God is the God who triumphs. He is the one true God. Even though there are all these other idols out there, from Baal to the uh, Astra's and all those others around them, yet there is one true God. And then verse 32 reminds us what this God does with his people. The God who equipped me. You see, God is the equipping God. He is the God who equips his people. In the New Testament, it says he equips them for ministry. Here it says he's equipping them with strength and making their way blameless. You see, he equips them in two particular ways that he's going to give in detail throughout this section. First of all, he equips the character of his people. Notice what he says. He has made my way blameless. In other words, David is referring back to the idea that God is blameless to a blameless man. It's not that the blameless man came before God and looked and said, Hey, I'm blameless. You've got to be blameless to me. No, God made him blameless. He had to remove the sin and the shame and the guilt from that individual in order then for God to show himself blameless and faithful. God Makes his people blameless, and then it says here not only he equips the character of his people, but then the whole rest of this section seems to dwell on the fact that he equips to the capability of his people. Listen to some of the things he describes here: strength, agility. That's what verse thirty-three is. Feet like the feet of a deer, and set me secure on the heights. You know what it was like, perhaps, to to fight in that terrain. It was rocky, it was hilly, and it was not a sure thing that you would have a sure foot to put down. It was something that was difficult in battle to find your footing in all these places of battle. And here he says, God has given me agility, a very important part of battle in those days. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. There's all kinds of interesting commentary on what that means But the idea is strength. Strength that he could fight the battle. You've given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. Again, a character attribution here. The idea again and again through all of these. It's not that David was so gifted. It's not that David was so strong. It's not that David had the agility of a deer and had the strength of a bull. It's not that he was so powerfully apt to fight war. It's that God made him this way. God is the one who gave him these gifts of strength and agility and smarts on the battlefield. Verse 36 repeats that, or 39 rather, repeats that. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. In other words, David says, even when I exhibited my strength on the battlefield and I saw the enemy go down as a result of the strength of my hands, yet you did it, not me. To not take the credit When he fought the battles, he says, God, it's not me who did these things, it's you. You made my enemies, verse 40, turn their backs to me. You made them destroyed under my hand. You see, as the equipping God, it's God who triumphs. It's not David who did all the triumphing. David, on his own, could do nothing. As scripture tells us, apart from Christ we can do nothing apart from in David's case, belief and faith in the promise of the Christ to come. Without that faith and belief in God's faithfulness, the God of the covenant who promised the seed of Abraham to or the seed of David to rest on the throne forever, then David would be able to do nothing. And yet he says, Not only is God the one true God, not only is he the equipping God, he's also the vanquishing God. God is the God who vanquishes his enemies. Again, you made my enemies turn their backs. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. On the one hand, God defends his people. He is a vanquishing God defending his people. On the other hand, he is a vanquishing God denying his enemies. Denying them in answer to their call for help. This sounds so mean, doesn't it? We like to think that anybody, anybody who cries to God for help will be given the gracious and wonderful answer of God. But we're reminded of the words of Scripture, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Those who have been shown the grace of God, not because they're worthy and blameless and pure, but because God by his grace has called them to be so by his son's own blood... These individuals, God will listen to them. David repeatedly in the psalm says they will hear, God will hear their cry, but those who are not his people, who God, by his grace and by his purpose and by the will of his life or of his living being, he passes by some and does not give them grace. And those individuals who have not received the, intervention of God's grace instead received nothing. There was none to save. They cried to the Lord but he did not answer them. Why should we be so grateful like David writing this psalm? It's because of this but by the grace of God we would be these people who cry out in their time of need, in their time of distress, in the time of battle when God's vengeance is raining upon them and they cry out for help. But it's not a cry of faith. It's not a cry to the true God. It's not a cry out of faithfulness that God has instilled in them by his Holy Spirit. It is a cry that will remain unanswered because God's vengeance is coming upon them. When David says, I beat them fine as dust, you almost get the the mortar and pestle idea here that he's grounding them into fine dust, casting them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. This vanquishing God on the one hand, defends his people. And this is the wonderful thing. If you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's not by what you have done. It's not even by your efforts to believe in him. It's because God called you out of darkness into his light. And because of that, God is faithful to you. He will hear you. He will defend you. He will, in the end, save you but for those who remain out in the darkness, as Jesus will say, in the darkness where there is gnashing of teeth, there is nothing. This God is the God of triumph. He's the one true God who equips his people, he vanquishes his enemies, but he's also the crowning God. Look at what it says here. You made me the head of the nations. David is saying this. In other words, David recognizes that this people that God has called unto himself are to be the nation of nations. They are to be the people that were to be the light to the whole world that as the world saw their relationship with God and their life walked blamelessly before him, they were to be the salt that prevents further decay and the light that brings wonderful blessings of God to the world. And David says, God, you have made me the head of the nations. People whom I have not known served me. As soon as they heard me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. This crowning God made David the jewel of the crown. And yet, as we see these things, it was just a foreshadowing of what was to come. You know there's a romantic story, you all know it, of King Arthur. You know the King Arthur legend. There's this fabled sword in the stone and this worthy lad comes along and he's just about ready to pull this sword out of the stone and nobody else has been able to do it. Warriors have come to to pull that sword out of the stone and of course this guy comes along out of nowhere and, and just out of the expectations of everybody, he's able to pull that sword out of the stone so that he would be crowned the king. You ever wonder where that story comes from? Well, what about David? David is the unworthy shepherd boy whom his father thought was so unimportant as the youngest of many children that he left him out in the field when the prophet came and invited the whole family to a feast. And as Samuel, the prophet, looks at these sons, one after the other, and says, boy, this one's handsome and worthy, surely this is the one God must choose, and God says, no, not that one, no, not that one, not this one, not that one, finally Samuel says, well, do you have anybody left? His father says, oh yeah, there's that guy out in the field, my youngest son. He's, he's the worst and the least of all of these. And, and he's out taking care of the sheep, kind of a, uh, the lowest chore that the boys would have. And why is it that David became a wonderful warrior who could conquer Goliath and a great king who in his time had basically unity for most of his kingdom? It's because God made him that way. It wasn't anything in David. It wasn't anything in that boy taking care of the sheep. It wasn't anything in that that instrumental wonder who played his lyre. It wasn't anything in the poet who could write lyrics to his music. It wasn't anything in the warrior uh, who had great skills and talent on the battlefield. It was because God made him who he was. God crowned him the head of nations. God made these nations come and submit themselves to him. In essence, they were subdued not by David's might and intelligence and gifts and charisma. No, it was by God's power and efforts behind him as he worked through history. So who in the end gets the credit? Is it David? David was a great king. David is the model by which scripture says, be like David, a man after my own heart, says God. David is lifted up as a mighty warrior, fearless even before a foe that seems to be impenetrable. David is the one who is lifted up as someone who loves the Lord, and we should love the Lord too. Do we exalt David? No. Even Peter and Paul, in their early sermons in the book of Acts, they say, David's in his tomb dead. But Jesus is not. You see, we exalt the Lord. Verse forty-six: The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Did you expect me to break out in song as I, I sung that, as I read that? I thought that, didn't you? Perhaps if you know that song, "The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation." You know, when, when we read these words, how often should we truly, in our hearts, at least, break into song? Because this is who God is. You know, we laugh sometimes about those old musicals, and now there's a joke. I think there's even a commercial that has opera singers on it or something, or commercials all the time. that have people just out of mundane, stupid things in life or just breaking out into song, we think, oh, here we go again. But how many times do you really feel the joy that maybe if you don't really break into song, it's at least in your hearts that melody that's there because you recognize who God is. The Lord is the living God. He's not dead. He's not silent. He's alive. And blessed be my rock. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. He's my boulder, as we looked at last week. Exalted be the God of my salvation. I have to say, sometimes they call us Presbyterians, the frozen chosen, and sometimes that's very apt. Because sometimes we don't sing with much joy. Sometimes I can look out at the congregation and we're all singing like this. you know. It's partly because sometimes we're not thinking about what we're singing. Sometimes we're not thinking about who we're singing about. You know, if you're singing about your great love as a teenager and you're singing with that expression and that wonder that you want the love of that individual to be in your life forever, and it, it's you're fallen head over heels with that individual. This is what the believer should be with God. God brought you your salvation. God forgave you of your sins. God makes you blameless and pure in his sight. God has called you from darkness into light. We could go on and on with these phrases. This is who God is. He is worthy. Verse 47, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. Not just who God is, but also what he's done. God has subdued his enemies. What is the great catechism question about Jesus Christ and the office of king? He subdued his and our enemies. That means he subdued us first. Because we were his enemies. And then he subdued the enemies of God's people. When we look at the world, sometimes in the church today, we're cowering in fear of what the laws and the culture and people around us might do to us. We say, what are we going to do? And we forget, who is God? He's the God who subdues his enemies. No matter what law, no matter what cancel culture, no matter what enemies there are about us, God is going to subdue them. And so we can come to God and exalt his name fearlessly and boldly. Even if we were to lose our jobs and our friends and our reputations. Because God will have vengeance and subdue those peoples just like he did in David's time. Verse 48, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from that man of violence. You see, he not only subdues his enemies, he rescues his anointed. Now does this mean that in every circumstance God is going to give this blessing of earthly or material rescue? No. If that were true, there wouldn't be martyrs, would there? If that was true, there wouldn't be those who are being persecuted as Jesus has promised. There wouldn't be those who are suffering terrible tragedies. But we do know that in the end, God rescues us from sin and from Satan. You see, David's example of exaltation is this. Not only does he write this psalm, but we know David's life. David was the guy who danced with all his might before the ark. So much so that his wife said, what in the world were you thinking? He was the guy who wrote endless poetry about God. It wasn't about his kingdom and his might and his glory and his power. It was about God and his might and God and his kingdom and God and his glory. For he says here, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. He doesn't say, I'm going to show the nations how wonderful we are here in Jerusalem. No, he says, I will among the nations praise you and sing to your name great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his offspring forever you see he's praising God and exalting him for his covenant faithfulness again here's that word here steadfast love the same word as to the merciful you show yourself merciful at the beginning of the psalm again the same thing the steadfast love here he is the covenant God In the time of David, he shows his faithfulness. And how much more so then in eternity with the forever king. After all, this is what it says. And his seed forever. Who is the seed of David? It's Jesus. The forever king. You see, David is saying, through trials and afflictions, through warfare and in danger, the Lord has been faithful to me. All David's exploits and character and attributes can be directly attributed where or to whom? To the Lord, to the covenantly faithful God, the God who called him out of that shepherd's role, the God who called him to knock down Goliath, the God who called him to unite the peoples under one kingdom after the Terrible kingdom of Saul, the one who called him to repent of his sin and give us an example of what it means to come with humility and have godly sorrow in repentance. The God who came to David and made him king is the one who is worthy to be praised. You see, David's kingship and David's line are there not because they were such powerful and wonderful people, but because God is faithful. God his steadfast love to his seed forever. I think sometimes we praise ourselves a lot and we pat ourselves on the back. We say how wonderful we are. We say how wonderful it is that God has given us this or that. And sometimes when we even say we even say we're giving credit to God, really sometimes we're saying God, look at how great we are. But what does David do in all his glory and all his might and all his power? In all his strength and abilities. He says it's not me. Exalted be God. The Lord lives. And blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God. Of my salvation. Let's pray together. Father forgive us. If during Thanksgiving time. We have said thank you to ourselves. Thank you to others. Thank you to just this land. Lord, help us to truly be grateful to you, the one true God, whose word has proven faithful and true, whose commitment to his people is everlasting, and who has done amazing things. Lord, help our lives to be intertwined with grateful thanksgiving to you, the triune God, Father.